Lifestyle, cho lifestyle choices and environmental factors impact your brain health and the physiology and psychology of your mental health. When you're ready to turn your brain on to get your game on, listen to In Your Head Radio. Now here's your host, Lee Richardson. Well, thanks for being with us today. We've got a really wealthy show. We've got Jane Elligard, and she empowers women to show up and own their financial journey with courage, confidence, and wisdom. After 34 years of managing wealth for high network individuals and wealthy families across the United States, Jane made the leap to entrepreneurship. She she is uniquely qualified with real experience and a variety of certifications and credentials. But even more important, she has an intense passion for providing women with a way to learn about money that's enjoyable and fun. And not everybody thinks of, you know, financial stuff is fun. It's hard to do. Jane is no longer serving as an advisor, so she is free of any conflicts. She isn't selling anything. Uh, she just brings her passion and her and wants women to learn how to have fun with money. She has a Master of Business Administration from the University of St. Thomas. She's a certified career coach and counselor from Adler Graduate School and is a results-based trained coach through the Neuroleadership Institute. Jane, thank you for being with us today. Well, thank you so much for having me, Lee. You know, it's it's interesting because you used to live in that world. You know, you were a certified financial planner and and you helped people to grow their wealth. But it's it sounds like in our previous talks, you know, that you had seen so many times that divorced or widowed women really had not been engaged in the whole financial situation. I did. You know, some of my clients, some of my, my female clients were very much engaged in the whole in the conversation and everything we were talking about and all the planning that was taking place. But for those women who weren't engaged in the conversation, it was really scary and overwhelming for them when suddenly they lost their spouse or there was an unexpected divorce. And I just felt so bad for these women who we're having such difficulties. And I mean, I would have women say to me, can I even afford to stay in my home or are my kids going to be able to go to college? Or, I mean, they had truly had no idea where they were at in their financial situation. And I kept asking myself, where can I send these women to get educated? Because, you know, it's not that anybody missed the class in school because there wasn't one, right? I mean, they weren't offering classes. And so there's just this gap in the education that women receive. And so I decided that that was what I wanted to go do. I wanted to really help educate women who had not been engaged in that conversation and make a difference for them. So, you know, Jane, you make some really good points because I have friends and I have clients that have been through a divorce and we and or, or have been widowed. And statistically, the husband is going to die first. And when they're left with the emotional grief, having to deal with that, but they're also left with the business aspect of it. You know, I have to balance a checkbook now, Lee. I don't know how to do that. And when you look at them and say, well, you can learn, that sound, they look at that as, well, that's that's not going to be any fun. I don't want to <laughs> learn that. How do, how do you help women? The first thing, the first step that you take to help women see, well, you know, it can be fun. Well, one of the first things I start out with, so I created what I call the six pillars to financial empowerment. 
And the first pillar is what I call explore your money beliefs. And I talk about the fact that my dad told me, marry a rich man. Did you know, did you hear anything like that, Lee, when you were growing up? <laughs> oh, yeah. Aim for the stars, you know. <laughs> and so he, you know, he told me things like that. He told me to go into sales because there was money to be made in sales. And, you know, what I share with them is that the message to me was that money was good and money would make my life better. And then I asked them to share their story. What did they hear when they were growing up? And what did they remember about, you know, money conversations in their family? And that is actually something that most of us don't step back and think about. And when I ask them to do that, it, it can bring up a lot of emotions. It can... For a lot of the women, it is very emotional. Like one woman started kind of tearing up and she said, well, I just hadn't stopped and thought about, you know, my grandparents, they're passed away. And, and so just thinking about them again is just, you know, really touching. And But thinking about those messages and how how they impact you and, and so trying to come at it from a very different perspective than what they've probably ever experienced before when talking about money. This isn't usually what your financial advisor is going to be talking to you about. And so I think it's part of it is that it's such a different approach that they start to realize, well, boy, this isn't what I'm accustomed to. This is what I was expecting. And so, okay, I'm going to open up here and see what what else Jane has to share with me. And so I think it's, you know, it's been such a male-dominated industry and so masculine. And it was really kind of built for men by men. And it doesn't have to be that way, though. I think what I try to do is really give them different ways to think about approaching money than they've ever experienced before, ever heard before. Well, and I think, you know, just having that positive energy around your approach to money is that's transferable. Because when I think back of some of the financial advisors that I've worked with, it, you know, it's it was so... Uh, difficult and so painstaking. I didn't understand the language. I didn't know the terms. And yes, I could ask what that meant. And I'll do that four or five times. But after that, I only felt more stupid. And they got tired of answering the questions. And I think that's exactly what happens a lot, Lee, for a lot of women, is that it is like a foreign language. And so a big part of what I do is take those concepts and give them analogies and ways to think about it so that they're connecting the dots when they go in to meet with their financial advisor and things are starting to make more sense to them. But, you know, your financial advisor has a big job and they're trying to, you know, when they meet with you, they've got a lot that they need to cover. And so they're trying to get through all the things, all the stuff that that is on their list that they need to have you answer and that they need to have you think about. And so for them to take the time, and I know I didn't have this kind of time, this luxury to think about how I really wanted women to think about their financial situation. That just wasn't, that wasn't one of my top priorities. I mean, I had all these other responsibilities. I was trying to manage the money. I was trying to, you know, make sure that my clients were happy. I was trying to find new clients. You know, you've got all these different things as an advisor and trying to come up with a curriculum that is going to make sense just for your female clients, you know, isn't what's top of mind for them. And so what I've done is 
taken all of my years of experience and said, I think I know how to approach this so that women will find it more interesting, are going to connect with it. I mean, one of the first things we do is I have them do a values exercise. You know, what are your overall life core values? And then we carry that through all of the conversations that we're having about money. And again, I just don't think that they've ever seen it approached this way before. And so it's very different. And it helps them because so many of us are very values oriented and we want our money to align with our values. And so often it doesn't. So helping them look at it from this very different perspective is really powerful. Well, I think, too, just getting clear on, on because sometimes, well, I don't know. I don't know about that. I don't know about that. And just having conversation can help you ha- help them have clarity. Oh, this is important to me. I hadn't thought about it before, but this is important to me. And this is something that I want to, I'd love to invest in something like this. Um, and it's just because when you think about the options that you have, they're, it's your money. And they're basically unlimited if you if you can free yourself to look at that. Well, and so oftentimes when I talk about the you know the messages that I heard and that I heard money was good, I also hear from a lot of women that the message they heard was that money is bad. You know, rich people are greedy or evil. And and one of my friends shared with me that you know her te- her parents were both teachers and. You know, it was like a badge of honor that they were doing good in the world, but not making very much money. And so when she got out of college, she went to work for a nonprofit and was doing good in the world and not making very much money. And she said she started looking around and realized that, you know, you can actually do good in the world and make money. And quite possibly, you can even do more good in the world if you're making money. But that's a hard mind shift, right, for people to make. And so helping them think through that. I mean, I hear so often from women, my money or my brain doesn't do math or I'm not good at numbers. And so they hold themselves back as a result of those messages that they've been telling themselves over and over again. And I know, I mean, you're very much into neuroscience and the brain and And I talked about the fact that, you know, those messages that we've been telling ourselves are hardwired like a thick cable. And it's hard to all of a sudden start telling yourself that new message. And you have to, you know, make that mind shift. And then you have to start taking action around it to actually make it happen and propel it forward. But it can be really tough to shift your mind around, you know, what you've been telling yourself and the messages you've been hearing for years. Well, what do you do in a situation where, cause I, 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 and this is a client I have, her husband died and, and she was a second marriage, although they were married for 20 years. But as soon as the husband died, the son comes in and says, you know, I'm going to take care of the estate for you. I'm going to manage all the money. And, you know, she was like, I'm a, I, I, I think I, I think I should do that. And, and I'm like, well, I think you should too. If you marriage over 20 years, you've got, you know, you've got your, you're got equal investment in the relationship. And she was like, how do I handle that? What advice would you give her? I would suggest that she 
get educated around her money and be very involved and engaged in the conversations because you can trust somebody a lot, but it's still better if you're the one who is making those decisions, directing what's going to happen. And I'm not saying that you're making the the decision of to, you know, to buy Coke and sell Pepsi or, you know, stock or anything like that. But having that base knowledge of those of the concepts, the basic concepts around money and finance is just going to really empower you, you know, her to make better decisions and to feel like she has some control versus releasing all of the control around your money. I would never encourage someone to just hand off all of the financial uh, decisions without your input. So what I hear you say is that you would be willing to, you know, to tell her to be willing to share some of the responsibility but as far as changing signature, signatures or who can sign off on anything, that should remain under her control. Absolutely. This is, yeah, it's her money and she should have control over that. I would not handle okay. that kind of responsibility to somebody else. You know, and the interesting thing is I think the it's all good intention. There's no there's no negative in the equation in, in any way except that she feels like she is being asked to give up something that's hers. Yeah, absolutely. I can see why she would feel that way. I would too. Yeah. No, I would encourage her to stay engaged. Is this unusual? I mean, do you deal with this type of thing on a regular basis? I did, yes. You know, it does happen a lot. Like I had one one woman who... um, you know, she shared with me, she said, you know, my, I didn't receive financial education growing up. And when I got married, you know, my husband was more than happy to manage the finances. And so she didn't get engaged. She was happy to let him handle the finances. And then before he passed away, he asked their daughter to manage the finances. And, you know, she said at first she was relieved, right? I mean, she was like, oh, that's great. You know, my daughter's going to take care of all of that. But she said, after a while, I started feeling like a burden, you know, like I had, you know, put this responsibility on her shoulders and I, I wanted to take that back for myself. I wanted to make the decisions for myself as to where I wanted to go and what I wanted to do rather than having somebody else make those decisions for me. Well, and it's, you know, it's such a difficult time that when you're grieving and you're going through that, that it, and we're all so vulnerable during that time, that it's easy to let things just kind of slide into a new rhythm. And when that happens, then the hard part is changing the rhythm in a positive way, but changing that rhythm to be more representative of of what the, the wife or the mother wants. Now, do you exactly. tell, you've written a book. You've written a book, yes. The Financial Empowerment for Women, Your Guide to Courage, Confidence, and Wisdom. And I know that's available. Do you talk about that in that book? Let's let's kind of dive into that book. Yeah. So what I talk about, so I want to talk about the courage, confidence, and wisdom because there's a, there's a purpose behind those three words. And so the courage is the courage to be proactive if you can, to get in front of those significant life events that will take place. And 
you mentioned earlier that the likelihood is that most women will outlive their husbands, and it is very high. Eight out of ten women will end up on this journey alone, whether they never married or divorced or widowed. So it is there's a very high likelihood that you know there will be that significant life event. So being proactive and getting in front of it. So the confidence is the confidence to take ownership of those conversations that are taking place today around your financial future, because this is your money and you get to make those decisions. And then the wisdom is the wisdom to make a difference with your family. Because if you don't understand your financial situation, you probably also aren't having the conversations with your parents, your partner or spouse, your children that you could and probably should be having. And so taking that time to really learn about this aspect of your life does so much for you. And I think it just, it flows into, and there's so many unexpected positive outcomes as a result of learning more about your financial situation, empowering yourself in this area. Well, I know, you know, math was a four-letter word for me. And if I could get (laughs) confident around balancing my checkbook when I was in college and managing my money, that gave me confidence in every part of my life. Yeah, it absolutely does. It was funny. One of the women who went through my program, she said, you know, before she started it, she said, Jane, my brain just does not do math, right? And it was cute. We were about halfway through the program and she came in one day for one of the sessions and, and she just, she was so excited. And, and I said, what's going on? And she said, Jane, there's almost no math in what we're doing here. <laughs> and, I said, well, and she said, it's actually more about gathering data. And I like gathering data. And it was just so much fun to see, you know, her, the, it was like this switch just flipped for her. And all of a sudden she had this whole different outlook about money and finance. And I mean, quite honestly, there isn't that much math. I mean, you can use a calculator usually, you know, for the math that you really need to do here. So it's not rocket science, but I think so oftentimes women, yeah, as girls, we were told we weren't good at math and we've carried that through. And now we've made the assumption that we can't handle our money. And I I think, you know, women are so smart and so capable, and I know that anything they put their mind to, they can absolutely do, and so it's just part of it is, again, just getting through those mindset messages that we've been, those limiting beliefs, right, that we've been telling ourselves for years. Well, you know, there's a stigma around women and money, and this is something I deal with, the stigma around mental health every mm-hmm. day. And stigma kills more people than heroin, and that's a fact. You know, in my in my role, in my world, the stigma around saying I need some help mentally stops people. It stops them from getting the help or even being brave enough to try to get the help because the stigma is, well, you must be crazy. And I think <laughs> in your world, maybe the stigma is, well, you can't do it. You know, don't even th- don't even get that in your head that you're going to be able to manage all this. You can't do that. I mean, let's talk. We got a couple of minutes before we go to break. So talk to me about that. Yeah, no, I think that's absolutely true that, you know, we we believe whatever's being told us. And like I said earlier, 
it's been such a male dominated field. I mean, there's very few, what, 20% women, uh, financial advisors, female financial advisors. And, and so we just have not been able to kind of break through those barriers of, you know, this is a really great career path for one thing. And it's, and it absolutely is something that women can understand and be a part of. And so, yeah, that's one of the biggest things I'm, I'm trying to help women get past is exactly that, the stigma of you're not capable because you are. Well, and it, it's hard when you haven't done anything and, and you find yourself maybe in your late 50s or in your, you know, in your 60s and you've never done it before. And, and you have people kind of raise an eyebrow at you when you say that you are going to do it. It, it. It's hard to think out of the box and to think about it. You know, it's I can do this. I can learn. I mean, I've I've had ladies in in their sixties learn a foreign. I had one lady learn Japanese, and I told her, if you can learn Japanese, you can learn anything. And oh my. and I really believe that, you know. But I do I do think that there's nothing more important to our heart and to our soul and to our security, our security, our kids' security, our grandkids' security than our money. And I think when you talk about people's money, it, I mean, it pulls at their heartstrings. When we come back from break, I really want to learn more because you've got six pillars for financial wisdom. And I want to learn more about those. All right. We'll be back after these messages. Would you like to know how to bring more ease to all the decisions you need to make in life? Knowing your core values is the first step in Joyce's free live masterclass. You'll discover your top five core values in as little as 45 minutes. Join her now at freegiftfromjoyce.com. Since fireworks were invented in 17th century China, people around the world have been enjoying the thunder fuel and quick crackle of fireworks displays. Believe it or not, being a firework designer usually requires a master's degree or PhD in chemistry. It's the heated reaction of chemicals within the fireworks that creates a variety of dazzling colors we experience every 4th of July. For example, copper compounds turn blue, strontium compounds give off a crimson hue, and sodium blazes a bright yellow. When I took chemistry, I felt you could never trust atoms because they make up everything. What's the name for the sound fireworks make when they shoot off from the ground? Piff Path. It's words you never heard. I'm Carolyn Davidson, and you can have fun challenging your words you never heard vocabulary with my free app, Too Funny for Words. We're back. Now here is your host, Lee Richardson. So we're back and we were just getting into the groove, starting to have a really good conversation about money. You know, we talked in the beginning of the show, we talked about how women have to, and men too, they, everyone has to explore their beliefs around their money and what they want to do with it. And then once you do that and once you get that clarity, I would think that the next step, Jane, would be to establish some financial goals. 
That is absolutely the next step, Lee. And so pillar two of my six pillars of financial empowerment is establish your financial goals. And what I talk about there is I want women to think about what is it that they want to achieve with their wealth? What's their destination that they want to arrive at in the future? And so stopping to think about that. So first, I really ask them to spend a little bit of time dreaming. You know, what, what are your dreams for the future? And I feel like we so rarely sit back anymore and dream like that. And so first, it's to dream. And then, it's okay, so if that's your dream, how are you going to achieve that? How can you get there? What are the steps that you can take? And so getting them to start to lay that out and really think about where they want to be in the future. And so that's really getting into that goal setting. And and we have a lot of fun with uh, talking about what's, what that looks like for each of the women because it's different. We all have different goals and, and dreams and, and where we want to arrive at. So when you say goals, are you talking five-year goals? Are you talking lifetime goals? Whatever they want to focus on. It could be maybe they have one that is, you know, a shorter term over the next six months or year. They may have them kind of more of a midterm, you know, three to five year. And then maybe there's a 10 to 20. It really depends on where they're at, their stage of life. You know, if it's, if it's a younger woman who's in her 20s, that could look very different. If it's somebody who's 60, then they're probably getting a little bit closer to wanting to retire or, you know, whatever it is that they're looking at. So, so it can be very different depending on, you know, where they happen to be in their stage of life. Yeah. And, you know, I think the hard part about setting goals is how do you measure them? I mean, how do you know, I guess with money, if your goal is to, to make a 10% return investment, I guess that's easier to, me- to measure. But sometimes to me, you know, measuring those goals is the hardest part. Yeah, it, you know, I think they can be very measurable. I, ha- I was talking to a woman just a couple of weeks ago, and she said that she had set a stretch goal, and she knew it was a stretch goal. And, and I love when people set stretch goals. I think a goal should be exciting, right? I mean, when I'm talking about goals, I want it to be something that you light up when you talk about it. And so it should be that kind of a goal, not the goals that get passed down to us, you know, for, when we're working in a corporate environment that we're told are our goals. This is a goal that you are really fired up about. And this woman shared with me that her goal was to save $100,000 towards retirement this year. And she said, I know that is a huge stretch goal for me. But she said, that is my goal. And I just think that's beautiful. So I think you can have it be very measurable. And I encourage the women to have, you know, have it be, you know, I I loved hers because it was, she was going to get that, accomplish that, you know, in, you know, this year and she had a dollar amount. So it was very clear what it was she was looking to achieve. And I did that for myself when, you know, when I was going to start my business. I had, you know, it was very clear I wanted to start my own business and I wanted to launch launch it, you know, by October 1st of that year. And um, I had very specific steps for what I was going to do to achieve that. I was going to have, you know, 10 networking meetings a week. I was going to have, um, you know, I was going to have a, a celebration, a launch party, you know, um, to celebrate what I had accomplished. And I had very specific, you know, steps and goals and, you know, where I was going to get to all around that one, 
you know, one dream and goal that I had. Well, that's incredible. I mean, and I think, you know, you, when you mentioned 10 networking meetings a, a week, that's certainly something that's very measurable. And it's not about what comes out of the meetings. It's about having the meetings. And yep. that's one of the, the issues that I run into with people when we work on setting goals is that they tend to be so focused on what they will accomplish with the goal instead of the actual goal itself. And for me, it was really about planting seeds, about telling people what I was doing and getting exposure. And, and you know, if nothing came of it, that's great. But I had told one more person, it's, you know, oftentimes it might be a year later that all of a sudden somebody will reach back out to me and say, hey, you know, I know I, I didn't really know exactly what to do with you right at the time, but now I've got an idea. Or here's somebody I'd really like to introduce you to, I think you should talk to. So so much of it comes back over time, but nothing may come of it right then immediately. But but I have planted so many seeds that have resulted in just, you know, wonderful sprouts and and you know, things that have happened later on. Well, once they, you know, once they get their goals set, and of course, I would assume most of those goals have to do with achieving some wealth, um, then, it, then it starts... I would think that you would have to break it down. How many women, when you first start working with them, know their net worth? How many women <laughs> that you first start working with know what that means? Very few, Lee. Very few women know what their net worth is when I first start working with them. But I call that your financial starting point. I think your net worth is such an important number to understand. It's like that, well, it's you know, when you think about when you book your flight to your favorite destination, not only do you need to know where you're going, you also need to know where you're starting from. And so establishing the goals, you know, that's really kind of that destination piece of it, but then you also need to know where am I today? And so your net worth is really that benchmark or that gauge that helps you determine here's where I'm at and what do I need to do? You really move forward and arrive at that destination. And so your net worth is, it's kind of sneaky. I Because I always say, you know, I bet if I ask you your height and weight, you know those numbers, right? Um, but do you know your net worth? Do you know your financial numbers? And the net worth one is, is sneaky because really a, a lot of numbers rolled into one. But you start with, you know, what are your assets? So what do you own? And that's everything from your... Um, from your home to, you know, investment accounts, retirement accounts, like your 401k or your individual retirement account, checking, savings, so everything that you own, you make a list of everything that you own and what it's valued at, what it's worth today. And then you have your liabilities and your liabilities is everything that you owe. So if, if you have a mortgage on your home, if you have um, student loans, if you have car loans, if you owe somebody, a, a, fam, a family member, a friend, if you owe them money, which is not a good idea. Prefer you not borrow money from family and friends if you don't have to, but if you do, get that one paid down first. But it's everything that you owe. So that's your liabilities. You add up your assets and your liabilities, and you take your assets minus those liabilities, and that is your net worth number. And you know, I had a, a woman who went through the program. Her name was Ruth. And Ruth said, 
you know, Jane, she said, I have been, she's been divorced for quite a number of years, and she said, I've been going through my net worth statement with my advisor for years now, looking at it. He would show it to me, and we'd talk about it. And she said, until I actually wrote it all out for myself and really went and looked for all of those numbers, I didn't really understand it. She said, but now, she said, I really understand where I'm at. And she said, I've been clipping coupons and pinching pennies. And she said, I'm going to be okay. I, I'm i really going to be okay. And so it just gave her this, this whole different viewpoint of where she would add when she actually did it herself. And so I know I, when I was an advisor, I would hand my clients a net worth statement. But there's something powerful about doing it yourself and really understanding the meaning behind it. I would also have women who were in the class who would really kind of push back on doing the exercise. And when I would talk to them about why they were reluctant, it might be because their husband wasn't sharing a lot of the financial information with them, so they didn't know a lot of, you know, how to find anything, and so they were kind of embarrassed about it. Or they knew it was going to be a really ugly number. They had more liabilities than assets. Or there was really very little to even write down. And so they didn't want to do it. And yet, in each scenario, when they actually sat down to do it, they learned so much and felt so much more powerful around where they were at and what they needed to do to move forward. You know, that's amazing that just the simplest, what some people consider the simplest things, having that that access to that information at your fingertips is yeah. so freeing. It is. <laughs> yes, it is. It re- I mean, it, it really is. And once, once you figure out what you have, I know personally, once I truly, and my husband for years, and I'm still married, said, you know, you need to, you need to be involved in this. You need to learn this. You need, and, and uh, until um, I pushed back initially, and then I thought, you know what? He's right. I do. And then mm-hmm. once I be- began to understand that, I got, you know, I thought about how I wanted to spend my money. It was, it was a conscious decision. How do we want to yeah. spend our money? What do we want to invest in? Um, and once, you know, once you get to that that level of thinking, I think you spend your money with a lot, a lot more intention. That is an absolutely beautiful way to put it, Lee. That, that is exactly what women discover is that, yes, they can be much more conscious about how they're spending. And it, again, and, and, and it aligns with their values. And we are very values-driven oftentimes as women. And so feeling like those are actually coming together and working, you know, in, in, in a Congress with one another. I mean, it just, it really, it, women like that. It makes a difference for them. Well, how do you find, you know, when women know that they have enough money that, and, and their kids are take, their kids are set, everything's good. How do you find women looking at their money? Are they more open to giving? Are they more open to different charities? Um, or are they more intent on keeping, you know, keep your eye on the ball? <laughs> 
some of both, quite honestly. I mean, I've seen it go both ways. I've seen women who, there was one woman I worked with who her, she and her husband had a significant amount of money, and yet she had in her head that she was going to be a bag lady in her old age. And she just could not seem to, I mean, we would sit down with her and we would explain that, you know, you have this much money and there's very little chance that you are going to be a bag lady in your old age unless something really horrific happens. But it just was so hard for her. And so, you know, so as a result, there was very little charitable giving because she just really could not give money away. And, but yet, I mean, I had so many other women who were incredibly charitably inclined and were very philanthropic and had many charities that they were involved and engaged with. And one of the very last things that we do really is wrap everything up and talk about legacy. And, you know, legacy is so much more than what happens to your money after you're gone. It's, it's about what you do with it when you're here as well. And so, you know, whether it's giving to your family and friends or it's giving to charity. And it's, it's also about the time, talent, and treasure that you give to causes that are close to your heart. So, you know, I think there's multiple ways. It doesn't necessarily have to be monetary, um, you know, as to how you think about your legacy and what you want to have happen. Well, you know, when you think about your legacy, then, you, of course, you kind of think about your death. Um, one one road leads to the next, and that's scary. You know, I don't I don't want to think about when I die. I don't want to think about, you know, what money is going to be left um, and, and how it's going to be divided. And I think that I would, I for me, it's very important that I have a plan in place and that those aren't emotional decisions. I know exactly what I want to happen, and I put that plan in place early on. Now, can I change it? Of course. But where I see my clients is when, you know, when they get into that crisis mode, that crisis situation, then they don't think through their decisions. They react to what's going on around them. And five out of eight will come back and say, I regret that. I really yeah. regret that. Yeah. Now, there's so much, uh, so much in what you're just saying there. I mean, one of the things that I would uh, always say to women is don't send your family on a scavenger hunt at the point of your death because people are grieving. And so the better your plan is, and I know it's hard to think about dying and, and what you want to happen. And, you know, the other thing that comes up so often is, well, you know, do, do I need to treat my children equally? Because they feel like, well, that's, that's what I'm supposed to do. And, you know, we have a conversation around, you know, it doesn't have to be equal. You don't have to treat your children equally unless you want to. But, you know, you may have somebody who truly does need more than the other one. Or so, you know, so it's really, it's a lot to think about. But the more that you can do up front, the more that it's going to help your family when the time comes. So let's talk about that. The more that you can do up front, what kind of planning is involved in that? Yeah, so establishing a will and um, trust if they're necessary. Um, So having everything laid out so that 
And and the other part is not just getting all of the documents in place, but that's having the conversation and communicating what you have decided. Because so oftentimes what people do is they do all the documents, you know, they sit down with their estate planning attorney and they get all the documents in place and and it might be fairly simple or it might be really complex, but whatever it is, they get they get that all done and then they tuck it in a file and they never tell anybody about it. And so one of the biggest things that I always encourage everyone to do is have that conversation. And it might be just with one person, but at least with one person, preferably with your whole family, but let people know what's coming because, you know, it's that you see it on TV all the time, you know, where the will is read and, and something completely different than what everybody expected has happened and they're fighting and, and yeah, it may not be, you know, the easiest conversation to have, but having that conversation so that everybody kind of knows what's in place and, and what's happening is just going to be that much easier again when the time comes. Well, and I think everybody would agree with that statement. There's no doubt about it, but will everybody do it? That's, you know, that's the hard part (laughs) because you really have to deal with some decisions. You really have to think through some things that, you know, it's hard. I mean, I have twins and it's so hard to think about, you know, I want to treat them equally and fairly, but at the end of the day, if one of them is quite comfortable and one's taken care of and the other's not, then that, then that pulls on my mom's strings, you know? Oh, absolutely. It absolutely does. And yeah, no, it's, it's not one of the fun things to think about. That's certainly true. But I find that a lot of the women who go through my program at the end, I ask them to each make one commitment to themselves and to their group. And then we come back together you know, three to six months later to hear how that one thing has gone. And I would say probably 80 to 90% of the time, the the thing that the women choose is something related to kind of that estate planning or, you know, making sure that they finish up their documents because they haven't done that or getting things organized or having that conversation. I, I've been truly surprised by how often that is, the area that they choose to focus on first. That is interesting. And, you know, I think that ties into, you know, because they want everyone to accept their thoughts and what they've done and that to take away that fear of judgment. You know, well, if they find out I did this, you know, when you can take away that fear of judgment, it's very comforting it is. And the other thing that I've seen, too, is that they decide to not wait until they're gone, that they may decide to start giving some of these gifts to um, their family while they're still alive so they can see them enjoy it. And so that is another thing that tends to come up is, well, do I really need to wait until I'm no longer here? Are there things that I can do today to relieve some of the financial pressure that somebody in my family is feeling. And so um, that's really fun to see as well. Absolutely. I mean, that's kind of like for people on the receiving end, it it allows them to appreciate your money in front of you. And it also helps 
the person who's giving these gifts to see kind of how does how does the person handle it and who handles it the best and you know so you can also have the opportunity to give some guidance um, around that versus just again it all happening when you're gone. Yeah, and that's you know in a loving way. That can be, if you work together in a loving way on that, that can develop a whole new angle in your relationship. Yes, it really can. One woman who went through my program, she, her mom um, had really been very, very frugal, saved every penny. And as a result, she had, um, this woman had kind of used money to be very free and it kind of burned through her pockets and and then when her mother passed away and she inherited this wealth, she took a whole different view of, oh, my gosh, I want to be a good steward of this money that my mother left me, and I don't want to just blow it. And so that was why she went through the program was because she really wanted to learn more and be more capable because she watched her mother, you know, save so carefully. There's so it, it just amazes me. There's so many different relationships that people have with their money. Some people love their money. Um, they love spending it. You know, mm-hmm. that gives them great joy. Some people love their money and they love saving it. They love being open that opening up that bank statement or that financial <laughs> statement and seeing you know what's going on. And then I've seen people that feel guilty about having the money. You know, so they, they, yeah, they, I'm not, they're not sure how to deal with it. Well, they feel either they, they inherited it or they came by it in a way that they feel like they didn't deserve. And so there's that Mm -hmm. whole guilt and that whole negativity. And, And then there's some people that you don't even understand their relationship with money. And a lot of times it's because they've never had enough, um, but I've seen yeah. it when you've when you've always had too much. I've seen that have a negative impact. Yeah, no, it, I see so much shame around money, and I agree. I mean, it it doesn't matter if it's because you have a lot of money, and yes, you feel like you don't deserve it, or um, you shouldn't have it, or you know whatever that happens to be. And then on the other end, of, you know, the spectrum is shame because you have no money, and and everything in between. And so, yeah, I've been amazed at that it's it's a constant regardless of how much money you have or don't have and you know it's I think I I can remember watching when I was growing up my my mom was very she was she was good with money um I won't say that she was tight but she was frugal and she thought about how she spent her money and if she thought it was worth it then for her or for the family, she did it. And I always thought, well, you know, I just have to think about how I spend my money and make sure that I feel like that that there's a benefit associated with it. Um, and as I've gotten older, I've learned that there's a lot more to think about than that. <laughs> but looking back, you know, we see what our, what our parents, the behavior that they model for us. And that certainly impacted the, my strategy on how I managed my money. Yeah, and it does for many of us. One of the things, pillar four, actually, I talk about spend with purpose. And I don't use the B word, budget. I think it feels like punishment. And again, I think it goes back to that 
all kind of all the masculine terminology that gets used. And so I kind of equate it with diet. I don't want to go on a diet and I don't want to go on a budget. And so I talk about spending from the perspective of treasures, promises, and joy. And so what are you saving for tomorrow's treasures for the future? And then what are your past promises? What have you already committed to? Your mortgage payments, your utilities, your groceries, you, you need those things. Those are necessities. And then whatever is left over after you, you know, paid for those two buckets is today's joy. And, you know, I also see so many people are afraid to have joy around their money. They don't feel joy at all around their money. And so finding ways to have joy. Some people have too much joy, right? Some people are saying, yeah. oh, too much fun. <laughs> but, you know, I think that's, that's a great thought ways, to yeah. leave people with. You know, we've got about a minute left, and I wanted to use that time so that if people were interested in, in getting your book or interested in finding you, how would they do that? Yes, thank you so much. They can find me at um, www.elegantwealth.com, and Elegant has two L's, like my last name, Elegard, so uh, it's Elegant Wealth, and my book is sold on my website, or you can also find it on Amazon and Barnes and Noble. So it's available different places, and I offer uh, courses periodically. I do both virtual and in person, so um, it's available to anybody anywhere. That is great, Jane. Thank you so much for being with me today, and thank you so much for sharing your fun, your lighthearted, but in very serious approach to managing money. Thank you for being with us. Thank you so much for having me, Lee. On behalf of Lee Richardson and the Brain Performance Center, we want to thank you for listening. If you'd like to hear more episodes like this, visit us on iTunes, Google Play, Toginet, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, 